0: All right. Good good morning everybody. I'm in an, in a new setting with new people and it feels really weird. <laughs> and I'm not used to having the microphone and he- hearing myself so loud. But we're going to be okay. So, I I am performing a psychological operation on you by having this board and writing so small which makes you feel like you have to move to the front so that you can read what I'm writing. So the purpose is to, to bring about a, a closer a fellowship with one another. That's why I'm writing so small. Today, we're in a way not, we're not starting Leviticus as much as we're continuing the book of Moses. If you turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Leviticus with me. Somebody tell me what the first word of the book is. Yours is the? What does it say? What's the first three words? The Lord called. Oh, okay. So, well, the first three three words in, in my translation is, then Yahweh called. You know, this is the next thing that that happens, which, you know, books, books don't start with the word then, but Genesis through Deuteronomy is one work as a whole which Jesus referred to as the book of Moses, or he, sometimes he called it the law of Moses, or just the law. In Jesus' Bible, there wasn't a book called Leviticus. Well, so how did we get this title Leviticus? Greek people, they did it. And Leviticus means, you know, per- pertaining to the Levites, which the things that are here in what, what we call Leviticus pertains to more than just the Levites. The Hebrew title for this division of the book of Moses is wa which is way cooler to say than Leviticus. <laughs> and what it is, is it's just the first word of the book, which the first word is actually three words, you know, and, and he called. So the, this is the book of, and he called, or then Yahweh called. This is the next thing that happens. So part of the challenge of Picking up here in scripture is that some of you have been in Exodus class, and this is going to feel something like, oh, we're just continuing on, and we are. But not all of you were in Exodus class, so I have to catch you up to some degree over the next 10 hours. It's not going to take 10 hours. We don't have that long. (laughs) But if we had that long, it would be really awesome, and I might be willing to do it. So, Coming here to the book of Leviticus, the, the way that the, the book of Moses works is, uh, it, it's called a chiastic structure. And this five-book book, which is why in Greek it was called the Pentateuch, it means it's the five book, because it, d- it does have five parts to it. You know, we, we call them Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and when you lay this down, it kind of works like, well, it doesn't work like your hand. This isn't gonna work. Okay, it works like a sandwich. You know, the two pieces of bread on either side match. Genesis and Deuteronomy match. They're, it's a book about the beginning around God's word. Deuteronomy, it's about a new beginning, and it's around God's word, which is the Hebrew title for Deuteronomy. You know, it's words. Uh, Then within that, inside of the sandwich, where you'd put the mustard on each side, that's the proper way to make a turkey sandwich you have exodus in numbers these books parallel each other they talk about wilderness wanderings and all of this is moving toward the middle which is you know the meat the central piece of the work which is the book of Leviticus you know this this is the mountain peak of the book of Moses and you're also going to see that it's really the central point that, that Scripture makes about how sinful man is made right with holy God, which is through a mediator and atonement, which happens to be the middle of Leviticus. It's the chapter on the day of atonement. So the, the Bible is purposefully structured to highlight the central points in the center and when we come to Leviticus, you know, usually when we're reading this in our Bible reading, we, we get here and it's just weird. And we don't know what to do with it because it's so different than our, our culture. It takes a little bit more work to understand it. But when it's right, rightly understood, I think what you're going to recognize is there's a lot of tension that's building into where we're at at Scripture in this point, and there's something in particular that you want to know, which is laid out as the focus in the book of Leviticus. And today as we talk about this book, this is kind of an introduction to it, to kind of bring everybody else up to speed, to orient us to where we're at in Scripture, and then we're going to spend another 11 weeks together in this book which is going to feel pretty fast-paced, I think, because next week we're going to have to cover seven chapters for that to, to work, but we, we will do it. I, I said this a lot in Exodus class, and sometimes the, you know, one class turned into six classes. So, maybe this will happen, maybe this will not happen, we'll see. So, Leviticus, as you know, the the focus on this book is holiness. And the book breaks out into two parts in talking about the way of holiness and the walk of holiness. So, I've summed this up as the way and walk of holiness. And as we come to this this portion of Scripture, if you're there with me in Leviticus 1, if you look back at just the paragraph at the end of. Exodus, I want to read that and try to pull together the, the settings so that we can understand together what it is that we're studying and seeing about the character of God here. It says, then the, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So, this is a unique moment in Scripture in which this is the first time that God has dwelt with man since Eden. Uh, This is momentous, especially considering the people that he's dwelling with. Uh, While they were chosen people, you wouldn't look at them as choice people, given their history and how they responded to God's grace and his gifting them with deliverance, gifting them with his law instruction and how they responded to it now to understand you know what's going on with the tabernacle and such I'm going to to draw it all out for you not all of it I'm going to draw out a lot of it though the major pieces of it so that sounds almost as cool as R.C. Sproul's effects that he has on his audio yeah so you have that i have to like write some stuff in latin while i'm doing this okay okay so here here's the big courtyard this is the tabernacle here's the wash basin Then here we have uh, the altar of burnt offering then there's a screen gate out here and then here's all the people those are people okay Now, Israel's worship was a gospel tract. And it works like this The tabernacle teaches God is holy. I got to spell that right. This is the word holy right here. Now, all the people out here, what we see, man is sinful. You know He's outside. God is in here, and in the holy place, man is outside. Uh, Israel wasn't a people who read books. They didn't really have much books. They heard things. You know, they, they were listening to messages that were given to them, which is important to, to think about when you're reading through the book of Moses because the things that, that he wanted to emphasize are the things that are repeated the most. And so you want to see, you know, what would you be hearing when you were hearing these things? But you also want to think about what you're hearing and what you're seeing, because God taught them in a way that they would understand, and the way that he taught them was by giving them this model that taught them something. There is this tabernacle that when they looked at it, it looked like a picture of what place? Yeah, it looked like Eden. So you have, you know, around the ark, you have the cherubim, which are guarding it. They're guarding the presence of God, and you're, you're outside of it, you know, inside the, the holy place. You have the menorah. You have the, the tree of life light stand that's there. And so, ah, this is all this is all the stuff that that's in Eden that... And tabernacle means dwelling place. You probably have that in your Bible translation. There'll be a little footnote next to tabernacle, and you look in the answer key, and it says dwelling place. That's what it means. So this was a picture of God's dwelling place with man, and it teaches that that God is holy and that everything's meant to, to live in his holiness and in his rest. That was his creation purpose. But you see, man's out here. He's not in here anymore. Man has been separated from God because of sin. And this is something that's very much emphasized in the book of Exodus, but what they end up wanting to know is, well, how how can we be in there? How can we be in God's presence when we're sinful? And so, Leviticus is about all this stuff in the middle. It's about the priesthood, mediator, atonement, it's about you know, the altar and sacrifice, wash basin, being made clean. Uh, you know, how can God deal with the, the, the death problem, the sin problem? How can he make you holy in your position and also in your practice? So this stuff in the middle, you have mediator and atonement. And this is, you know, the connecting point between sinful man and holy God. Now, this also here teaches us, you know, the nature of the law. The The law is an instructor. That's what it does, and that's all that it does. You know, the law is, is a model that teaches. So, as you think through scripture God's creation purpose was for man to be in his presence or in his land under his blessing and rest forever which is what eden was and what happens is that man doesn't listen to the word of God he doesn't listen to the command of God and sin separates him and places him you know outside of God's eternal rest, Would you remember how the creation week works. You know, you have six days with evening and morning, and then on the seventh day, everything's in God's rest, but there is no evening or morning. It's it's an eternal day. It's a day which God has always existed in because it's the day of enjoying, you know, His character and His will, you know, to, and it's about his work and enjoying that work, which, you know, Adam was to work and to guard that, but he didn't do that. He fell out of that relationship. So the, the tension in Scripture becomes, well, how, how can man enter back into Eden? How can he enter back in to God's rest? Well, you know, if Adam was to try that, he's a dead man, there's a whole angel army out in front of the, the place and a gyroscope flaming sword thing. So it's like, not a chance, honey. We, we're going to keep moving east for a while. I'm sorry. <laughs> so there's these major themes in, in Scripture that you want to keep in mind while you keep reading, which is ho- holiness and Rest. Because rest is to exist in God's holiness, which has to do with uh, His uniqueness and everything being set apart to Him. We want to return back to being set apart to Him and in Him. And God made that promise that that's exactly what would happen in time, that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And he also gave this hint of that it would be done by sacrifice and that he kills an animal, he makes a sacrifice, maybe a lamb, maybe a ram, I don't know, doesn't say. But you could imagine as an, as an Israelite, you know, hearing the, the book of Genesis, like, we know how this stuff works. And, you know, God giving them a covering, you know, seeing that you know Adam and Eve couldn't cover their sin, only God could do that and he would do that. But the question is, always, well, how does that work? I mean, how can he do that? Like, he should kill them, and they deserve it. But he's letting them live. So he's being gracious to them. And that he, there's this compassion toward them in which he sees their need. But grace is also power. And that he's also able to do for them what he wants to do so continuing on in scripture from you know god's creation purpose is for his name to be made known to the ends of the earth that we would be fruitful and multiply the the glory of god all over the place essentially the the entire universe would be the temple so much so that you wouldn't even say that there's a temple anymore there's just no temple which is how the bible begins and how the bible ends we go back to the day of you know, God's people and God's land under God's blessing and rest, and there's no more temple. Well, it's like, well, why not? Well, because the tabernacle grows and it and it, it swallows everything into it. It takes over the whole place. Uh, maybe I'll go ahead and explain that before we talk about the covenants a little bit. But you can think about this. You understand this from scriptures that, you know, the within the tabernacle, you have the the Holy of Holies, which is, you know, dwelling in the presence of God, and you have the holy place with, you know, the the tree of life, light stand, uh, the altar of incense, the bread of presence, you know, this is all pointing to uh, the light of the world. It's all pointing to the you know, the bread that comes from heaven and protects and provides and guides, and that altar of incense in which it's you know, the the presence of God, which it, it's that you know aroma of sacrifice which God enjoys. And what happens with the with those two things? You have the holy of holies and, and the holy place. Is that the holy place is the first thing that intrudes on enemy territory to connect man to the Holy of Holies. So, you, you could hear all the connections I was making to, to Christ within the tabernacle furniture, but all of that was to teach them is this is how salvation is going to work. You trust that that's how it's going to work, and then God credits that faith as righteousness. And so, what happens is that Later on in, in history there's a permanent temple that's built to signify that God's going to permanently dwell on the planet with man. And then Jesus shows up in John chapter one says he tabernacled among us or he dwelt among us and he says that he is God's place. So he says the you know the holy place in the holy of holies was to teach you about him, to go to him and to understand who he is and what he's doing, but he he's he's a mobile temple. He starts moving around and bringing people inside of himself. But what he does is he also does something with what we see in this model of the tabernacle and the priesthood. Uh, some of you might remember hearing me talk about how the, the priest dressed like the temple. They, they wore the same colors and they, they wore the same sort of fabrics and stuff because God wanted them to be little mobile temples, you know, a priesthood of people who would point others to who their God was. But it showed that God's intention was always to, to live inside of man as his place, but for man to come and live inside of his place as well. And so Jesus is, is the temple, when, it, when he leaves, he sends the Holy Spirit and his people Become little temples that they go around about as a, a royal priesthood, as Peter talks about it. There's, and what you see that's different with Israel's mission and, and their role in Exodus 19 was that they were called a kingdom of priests. But when you get to Peter, he doesn't call the church a kingdom, he removes the political entity part. From it, it's, you know you're a royal priesthood. You know you're of royal lineage, but uh, you guys aren't uh, a, a government. <laughs> He's a, you know, the government's on his shoulders, and it's Jesus ultimately who's the high priest who dons the ephod of the twelve tribes of Israel to have them on his shoulders to carry out his kingdom rule in the future, which you read about in the third Exodus, which is the book of Revelation. What was I explaining? Oh, yeah, tabernacle, temple, Jesus' temple, little temples until everything on the planet is temple. So much so that, you know, we have that phrase, we say, well, if everything is that, then nothing is that. You know, that's what happens when all of God's creation plan is carried out in salvation history is that you know everything's temple so nothing's temple you know man man has been redeemed and then the the missing piece is that well man still needs to be in the land and no enemies there so the way the the scripture teaches us about how the exodus works is it starts in the book of exodus and what what god does is he takes israel out of exodus or he takes them out of egypt on an exodus But then what you find out with Israel is they need more than that, because they don't even like that God did that for them. He said, well, "Well, you just brought us out here to kill us. It's like, you people are not understanding what's happening here, which shows that they need another exodus, which isn't just uh, horizontal, it's vertical. You know, Egypt needs to be taken out of Israel, which is what the gospel of John is about, which is why... John keeps focusing on the Passover, the Passover, the Passover. He's like, you know, the leaven of sin in your old life, it has to come out. It's like, well, how is that going to happen? It's it's this stuff. It's the stuff in the middle of the model with the priest and uh, atonement. That's how it works. But then after that's established, you still have this other problem And that while Egypt has been taken out of the heart of God's people, Egypt's still in the land. Somebody has to do something about that, which is the book of Revelation. It's the final stage of the Exodus plan in which God takes Egypt out of Egypt. So, ultimately, there's three Exodus, you know, uh, events in the Bible, and everything's moving toward that. So, you can think, how this is framed and forwarded within God's covenant promises. And the first covenant in the Bible is what? Noaic covenant in which God, he repeats in Genesis 9, he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, still my creation purpose, that you make my glory known to the ends of the earth. Uh, nothing has changed and, and the goal is still Rest. So the Noahic covenant basically functions to say this is the railroad track that all creation has to follow. Uh, It has to end with everything in God's rest. And so what you're hearing in Genesis chapter 9 is everything's still on track. Even though a bunch of crazy things have happened, people are sinning, fallen angels have done some stuff, everything's still on track. Then the next covenant after the Noahic covenant in Scripture is... Yes, Abrahamic covenant, yes. So, within the Abrahamic covenant, this is, God communicates that he's going to give the gift of the return into that rest, and it's going to involve all of the things that were lost, land, seed, blessing. So, he said, it's going to involve the the land that you lost, I'm going to give it back, you know, the, the family relationship that was lost with me, I'm going to give it back. Uh, living under only my blessing and no cursing, I'm going to give it back. And so these are like the, the train carts on that, that train track of the railroad to rest. He says, you know, the, this is how, how it's going to work. I'm going to give you this gift of riding this train and getting to that destination which brings us to the next covenant, which God makes in the Bible, which is Mosaic Covenant, right? Which is right right where we're at. And, you know, I talk about the covenants, I say that they, they frame and forward, you know, God's redemptive plan. You know, you think about the puzzle of, you know, how does all of this stuff work in the Bible? Well, it's God frames it out with His covenants and says, this is how everything's going to work in history. And as you're reading the Bible, you always want to know what covenants are operative at that time because you you know what sort of things are supposed to be forwarded that have happened, but you also get the tension of there's, uh, there's some other pieces that have to fall into place if the train's actually going to move and go somewhere. And so what the Mosaic Covenant is, it's... It's kind of like the tour guide instructor where, you know, Moses comes along and he teaches you, uh, you need to ride that train, but you can't. Uh, you're, you're separated from the conductor of the train, and you need a ticket to ride, but you don't have one. And this is what, you know, the tabernacle and the law does. It, it instructs and it teaches that God is holy, that man is sinful, and man needs a God-man mediator. Now, you have to remember that it's just a model of how it works. You know, Paul talks about this in Galatians and that he says, you know, the, the law was, you know, a guardian. Or the, the law was in charge of you for a time, until Christ came. Or in Hebrews chapter 3, he talks about how God was the builder of the house and Moses oversaw that house for a little while until Christ came. And it kind of builds out something that, you know, we understand in life in which, you know, a, a child isn't meant to always live in their parents' house. You know, they're meant to be instructed to to move out eventually. You know, Moses' Moses's administration before Christ was a a parenting sort of administration. He's instructing people in, you know, how to live, and he's teaching them to to move out from his roof and under Jesus' roof, ultimately. And and the law is successful in doing that. You know, it's it's a pointer. Uh, You see this in Exodus chapter 15, If you want to turn over there with me, uh, this is Exodus 15.25 is where I'm going. And this is where you see Yahweh teaching Moses the nature of the law. And I want you to follow along with me because I'm going to say one word different in this verse to point out something. Exodus 15:25. 25, and, Then Moses cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh Torahed him a tree. You now, this is the verb Torah. He, he instructed him toward a tree, or he pointed him toward a tree. You think about, you know, I described the Mosaic covenants. this instructor that points. You, know, you, you need to get on that train, you need a ticket to ride, but you don't have a ticket. And Moses, he cries out to Yahweh, Yahweh, you know, he showed him a tree. Instructed them toward a tree. Why a tree? Well, this is God showing that He's He's not pointing out the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but He's pointing out a tree of life. He's pointing out He's going to reverse things. He's going to reverse this situation where people are grumbling about how God has provided for them. You know, they weren't content with what God had given them in the wilderness, and why well, He's pointing Moses to this tree of life. It's pointing out the people's sin. He's saying, you guys are like Eve. You want something different than what I've given you. But God is gracious in that He shows him a tree, and He threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So you see this rescue from judgment that came was by God providing a tree of life. It was by Him choosing to give them living waters when they didn't even want it. And this displays the nature of the law first taught to Moses. God God is holy, man is sinful, and man needs to be pointed to a tree which can give life. Now, when you think about, you know, Israel's worship as, as a gospel tract, I'm going to keep reemphasizing the fact that it's just, uh, it's just a model. That's all it is. Just like, you know, let's say you, you wanted to learn how to drive to my house, and I drew out a nice little map for you, and I got a little RC car, which is the model in my analogy here, and I said, you just do this. You go... <laughs> And you're like, wow, that's pretty, I get it. I get how to drive there now. And then, I, and then the only thing I give you is that car to get there. Like, well, this is not going to work. I, I need, now I need to get the real thing so I can actually go somewhere and get there. Which is, you know, this model is just, you know, this is just the RC car. It just shows you how it, how it works. It shows you the way. But Jesus is the way. you have any questions about that or is that all pretty clear? If you have any questions along the way, you know, feel, feel free to, to ask. Now, Israel's role under the law was also to point. If you turn to Exodus 19, 5 through 6, I call this the preamble to their constitution. It lays out their role Exodus 19:5 through 6 Israel's role here says, So now then if you will indeed listen to my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation So this is what they were supposed to be but it was contingent upon their obedience that they would be his treasured possession. And they would be a kingdom of priests, which you know, the idea was the, they would mediate God's presence to the planet. You know, they would be a little picture of the world to the whole world, but they would also, which they do this mostly negatively. So when you look at, at Israel, say, wow, they're really sinful, just like everybody else. You know, that's what they were to point out as people would observe them. But you see Paul talk about this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, you know, the, the things that happened with Israel happened as an example to us so that we would learn how to not be idolatrous like that. But it also, you know, pointed to the fact that we're separate from God, but that we can have a right relationship with God through a mediator and atonement. You know, even people that were watching Israel move around in the wilderness from the, the foothills out there, they could see how this gospel tract worked. You know, they had similar worship systems, but they were counterfeits. But they are saying, this one is like ours, but there's some differences about it. And Israel, as a pointer, they point out that man is sinful to the whole planet, and there to be a mediator of God's presence, which you see with the priesthood, and there to be a holy nation. Now, this word nation is probably a Hebrew word that you know, goi, or the plural of it, goyim, which, you, which you've heard before, which... What God is saying is that they're to be separate but not separatist. They're not to say, well, uh, we're Hebrews and everybody else is Gentiles. He calls them by the word Gentile. That word holy goy is translated either nation or Gentile. But He's like, you guys are to be holy Gentile. So He doesn't make a distinction like you read about this became a problem. You read about in the New Testament that people made a distinction between Jew and Gentile. God says, well, His plan was always to have, you know, one man, you know, one new man, and everybody's part of the priesthood of making God known to the planet, which was the mystery of the church. You read about this in Ephesians 2. So, the mystery of the church is that Gentiles are part of the priesthood too, of making God known. And they say, "Well, no, 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 no. We built the court of women to set them outside, and we also built the court of Gentiles. And when people try to come over the wall, we beat them up." And he says, "No, the, you know those God never instructed for them to build those extra walls or extra courts, but for them to be a picture of what that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." But through mediation and atonement of God's high priest and sacrificial lamb, you know anybody who believes can be reconciled to God. I'm looking through my notes to make sure I said all the stuff I was planning to say. So when it comes to understanding you know, the, the law and the Old Testament law in relation to us as new covenant believers, we're under the administration of Christ, how is it that we're supposed to understand the Mosaic law? What do you guys think? Yeah, it's a teacher. Uh, is it a transformer? Can it transform you or anything? No, it can't. You know, that, and the, that ends up being, you know, the great misunderstanding of the law throughout the ages. you know, when God first gives it in, in Exodus 20. Which, you know, in a way, when he gives the, the Ten Commandments, he's not giving them for the first time. They were built into creation. You see this in Genesis 1 in the, the ten God said statements. You know, those ten words were already laid out and built in as instruction to the whole creation already. And then in the ten plagues, God shows, you know, you, you don't live by my creation instructions, I'll destroy you. But then with God's 10 words here in Exodus 20, God shows, I'm going to restore all of that stuff. I'm going to fix all of those things, not only through destroying some things, but by delivering others, which is why I've delivered, you know, Israel to show others that He's a deliverer of the undeserving. Now, the way that Israel responded to that was, they said, "We will obey everything that you said." <laughs> They're like, "This is going to transform us. It's going to transform the world. If we, this is going to transform our families. It's going to transform world governments." It does not do that. It doesn't work that way. Which you, know, you see that with the Pharisees. You know, they they thought, you know, if we keep the law, it, it'll transform who we are. It'll transform Rome ultimately somehow. If we can just you know, if we can bring the Mosaic law into the civil sphere, it'll change everything, which people are still tempted toward that sort of misunderstanding today. They think, well, how do you parent your kids? You bring them the law, it'll change them. It's like, well, no, they, they, uh, the law brings them instruction that, that they need, but it's meant to ultimately point them to the fact that they need somebody to save them, to give them divine empowerment to love and live by that law. Or people say, well, we just need to get, you know, a greater Christian influence in America. It'll change uh, all of society. It's like, no, it won't. It, it won't transform anybody. But people will say, well, yeah, but what about, well, when a government honors marriage, things work better in a society? Well, it's not because society was transformed. It's just that's how things work. It's just like you're sitting in the car with a stick shift and it's a neutral. So I it's, it's, it's not it's not working. He said, Well, put it into first gear. And they put it in and it works, and you don't go, The car has been transformed. It's like, Well, no, that's just how things work. So it's like, you know, when a government catches on to, you know, honoring marriage and the, this is how people propagate and we're fruitful and multiply, and it's a blessing, it's not because it transformed anything, it's just that's how you get into first gear. Michael, you had a question? No, it's. Yeah, the, the, the law is the kindergarten which brings you to the college of Christ. So it's a, you know, the law is the, the thing that instructs you and it teaches you this. I, nobody, nobody's going to pursue the, the Savior if they don't think that they need saved. So what does the law do? Paul says in Romans it gives knowledge of sin. And he says, which the person already knows. You know, God has already placed that law I- internally in the thing that we call the conscience. You know, is they're, they're with knowledge. They know that they've sinned against God, and they deserve to die for sinning against them. And the, so, when we use the law, we're just pointing out what God's already pointing out inside of them, that they're sinful. They know that they deserve to die. They know that they deserve eternal judgment, but it's meant to point to you know, because you're in the situation, you need to get into a refuge. But then the question is, well, what is that refuge? And people try you know, all sorts of counterfeit sort of things you know, uh, other than Christ to deal with their sin. But ultimately, the thing that they need to do with their guilt is, is to go to Him. So when it comes to evangelism, you know, this, this is evangelism 101. This is where we start. We start with the law. It's, it's the only tool that God has given us into the human heart to instruct them that they need to to turn to Christ, but we also don't want to stop there. We do have to start there, but we can't, you know, just stop there and only give them the ministry of death and condemnation. know, that's this. I'm referencing Second Corinthians three when he talks that Paul's talking about the the administration of Moses had glory, and so much glory that. You know, when he when he came down from the mount the second time, his face shone and people thought, We're dead. This is bad. Because what had just happened before that was, you know, God, everybody had assembled, God had given them the law. They said they were going to obey it. And the way that they do it is a mol- a molten calf. And and they say, This is a feast to Yahweh. And they say, Look, we're doing everything he said. We're using the right word Yahweh. We're having feasts like he said to do. This is awesome. He he is going to be so pleased with us. <laughs> well, they were mistaken, but that event had to happen because the law was serving its purpose in pointing out their sin. Because he he was he had always intended to teach about his grace that he's that he forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression. But the sin, iniquity, and transgression had to happen before they could understand that he's a God who graciously forgives those things. So, then what happens within that ministry of death is 3,000 people are killed. You know, Moses says, whoever's with me, you Levites that are with me, strap on your sword. Uh, We have a ministry of death and condemnation. And that's what they bring to the people. So, then later on, Moses goes back two new tablets to show that God is renewing this relationship with them. Yeah they look at his face and they see this guy has been transformed and they're thinking uncle's dead cousin's dead brother's dead this is bad I've never seen anybody that looks like this maybe he's just going to kill us by himself and not even use the levites this time this is bad and so they're afraid and Moses recognizes you know he needs to you know veil his face but there's a tension there because you're seeing we deserve to die, but people can be transformed, which is how, you know, as you keep reading through Second Corinthians 3, that's where Paul goes with his reasoning is that it's by beholding Christ that we're transformed from glory to glory, you know, from death glory to life glory, because, you know, glory isn't, you know, just the life piece, glory is uh, the the revelation of God's character and will and god brings death he also brings life but it, he brings condemnation but he also brings righteousness and paul is saying we're ministers of a better covenant than that uh, and that covenant did have glory to be sure don't just write it off it's it's the thing it's the foundation that helps us understand everything else and and it makes us grateful for having the reality of what people were hoping in. So you can see with all of the the death, the condemnation, and all that ensued there among Israel, that when God has the tablets given back to him, which we usually think about, you know, these tablets as, you know, this this was the Love Your God tablet and this was the Love Your Neighbor tablet, but it was actually two Full copies, which you know, traditionally how this would work in their culture is that a, a king would come in and just totally defeat your people. And then he would write out his terms and say, Now that I have made you my slaves, this is how things are going to be. I got my copy that I'm keeping over here in my castle, and here's your copy so that we both know that you got this. And if you break those, you're dead. But God is different. And that he's given them both tablets, which he's, he's signifying, I'm, I'm not planning to hold these things against you. But he's ultimately, he's kind of hinting at, I'm going to be paying for them for you. Uh, I'm going to be keeping the law for you. So he's given them you know, both receipts, which is saying, you owe me this. You owe me absolute obedience, and you haven't given it to me, and you all deserve death. But they're seeing okay, uh, when we first got the two tablets, we broke every single one of them. But now they're coming back and showing that God, God is going to restore this relationship, which is what Moses was begging God to do when, you know, in that moment when he's asking God to show him his glory. He said, God, you can't do this. You, you can't kill all of them because of what you said to Abraham. You, you said that you were going to build this nation... And he's not, he's not doubting God. he's just went, well, how is this going to work? And what Moses already has learned is it works through a mediator. So Moses says, I'll be that guy. I'll, I'll be the mediator. And, and God says, you're right that that's how it works, but you're not the guy. You need the guy. You need a mediator. And you remember Moses says to the people before he goes up, the mountain. He says, perhaps I can make atonement for you, which he's understanding things, and that was a really sweet thing to say, but he couldn't do that. So, God explains to him, well, you're right that atonement is how it works. You know, it is by somebody else being blotted out in somebody else's place, but you can't do that. You need that. And so, it's all brought together that you know, mediation, atonement is how it works, but Moses isn't the guy. You know, the, the law is too weak to accomplish what only Christ can do, which is what Romans 8 talks about. You know, the law is as weak as it was it by the flesh, could not do what Christ ha, has done. You know, the law was always pointing toward him. And so, Moses, when he says, show me your glory, what he's saying is, show me your character uh, show show me how you can uphold justice and bringing the death penalty but also be the justifier of ungodly people so show me how that works which the other part of god's glory is that it's his will you see show me how this works out with your covenant promises because i know that we have to enter into rest ultimately uh, i know that the land and the family and the blessing all has to be restored show me how it works and this is in Exodus chapter 34. And this is how the Lord shows. I'm mean, going pick up in verse 5. I want you to see this here. Exodus 34, 5 and 6. This this is how Yahweh shows him. It says, then Yahweh descended in, a, in the cloud and stood there with him. So you can imagine, she's like, well, how does mediation and atonement work? And Yahweh comes there right next to him after showing him, you need this. It's like, well, how does it work? You know, if it's not me, who does it? Yahweh's there in a cloud, standing there with him, and he called upon the name of Yahweh. It's like, who who did? Who called upon the name of Yahweh? Uh, Yahweh did. It's like, Yahweh's talking to Yahweh. This is how mediation works. This is how atonement works. And it says, then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out. It's like, well, what, is it, what does Yahweh say when Yahweh calls out to Yahweh? It says, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So you see that when we talk about you know, God's glory is His character and His will. Well, here's the character piece of it. You know, compassionate, gracious. So, well, how does that work with His will? That's verse 7. What does He do? Uh, who keeps loving kindness for thousands? Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth Generations. Uh, the way that we're probably more accustomed to hearing, you know, Yahweh call upon Yahweh is to think about you know, Jesus on the cross when he says, "You, know, Father, why have you forsaken me?" You know, he's making atonement and he's calling out to Yahweh. And he says, "Father, forgive them for they know not what they do." You know, this is you know, Moses is hearing much earlier in history, what Jesus, you know, God's Son will be saying to God, to fa- God the Father when He mediates and makes atonement. But it's going to be based on God's character, which is that of grace and truth. That's those last couple of descriptors in verse 6, you know, loving kindness and truth. Uh, that word loving kindness, hesed, is a Hebrew word. That's what gets translated as Grace in the, the New Testament, and so when Jesus shows up in John chapter 1, it says he's full of grace and truth. Uh, he's full with exactly who who Yahweh is because that's who he is. He's, he's Yahweh calls upon Yahweh. Uh, Jesus' name is Yahweh saves. Uh, he's the exact image of God's nature as it's talked about in Hebrews, which we all know that, you know, Leviticus very much connects in to the book of Hebrews, and it's just showing all of that stuff was to, to point you toward Christ. Look how, you know, Christ was pointed to in the priesthood and the sacrifices and, and all of these sort of things. He says, this is, this is the milk stuff, people. Leviticus is the milk stuff. Christ is the meat stuff. He says, we shouldn't have to talk about it. You should already know these things. <laughs> So, there's this tension that you hear in God's revelation of His glory and that He forgives, but He'll by no means let the guilty go unpunished. So, at this point in Scripture, we believe that He does that, but we don't know how He does that. And the people are just baffled, totally amazed at this, and... God had already given them the, the tabernacle instructions on how to build the whole model. And chapter 35 in Exodus begins saying, that. Then Moses assembled all the congregation the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things that Yahweh has commanded you to do. Six days' work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day. A, a Sabbath of complete rest to Yahweh whoever does any work on it shall be put to death so he says everything in his creation plan is on track we're moving toward rest enter god's rest or die and then they're like let's enter it <laughs> we don't want to die and so all the people they they start building the tabernacle they they bring their absolute best they bring supplies and service to the point where Moses says, tell everybody to stop bringing stuff. We have too much stuff here. And it's like, well, how was how all of this uh, happening? Well, 3521 says, you know, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit was willing came. You know, God wasn't looking to coerce a people into worshiping him, but they came with willingness that was motivated by his grace. Like, look how gracious he's been to us. Let's give him everything that he has given us. Everything goes back to him in life. We want to we honor him with our absolute best. And verse 31, this is 3531, says he This is talking about some of the main, the the general contractors on the project here. He says, He has filled him with the Spirit of God. It's like, well, how did they have the power to do this? The indwelling of the Spirit of God. It, so they had wisdom and in discernment and in knowledge and in all craftsmanship to carry out building the tabernacle so here's what happens in these chapters is they they keep building it they build the tabernacle and while they're building it and they're giving God their absolute best obedience they're moving east which we know is bad and they end up building themselves out of the tabernacle and they build this base, and then they build this altar, and then they build this big fence and this screen gate. And after giving the Lord their absolute best obedience, they see that what it did was actually build them out further from Him. And so there's this tension It's like, well, there's this hope that we can dwell with them, but our best obedience can't get us there. Even trying to give you know, our, our best obedience makes us more separate. Uh, so how does this work? And you see the all this stuff in the middle is the answer to that tension, you know. Uh, how can holy God dwell with sinful man? This is what Leviticus answers. How can holy God dwell with sinful man? How can sinful men be made saints? How can they be made holy? Can it be by their Best obedience he says now that only takes you further away from God. And one of the things that gets echoed throughout Leviticus, he says, I am Yahweh who holies you, I'm the one who sanctifies you. It's like, well, but how can you do that and not get yourself dirty? How can you touch unclean things and you not get dirty but they become clean? He says. The, the altar of burnt offerings in the wash basin i'll teach you about it and, and he brings in the, uh, the priest and that's the connecting point this is how the relationship of holy god and sinful man can be reconciled and as you end the, the book of exodus you know god's god comes and he dwells in the tabernacle this is back we're back in exodus 40 and verse 34 where we began Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. But now that the glory of Yahweh is in the tabernacle, watch what happens in the next verse, and Moses was not able to enter. Why was he not able to enter the tent of meeting? Because the cloud had dwelt on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So, it's like, this is like the best day and worst day ever, of our whole lives because it's like we know that it can happen, but it hasn't happened. It's like we, we know like the, the promise is being held out right in front of us that, that God can dwell with man, that we can be restored to a relationship like that in Eden, but we're outside and if, and if He's there, that means we can't be there. So how can we be there and how can God be forgiving yet also carry out the punishment that we deserve? That brings us to the book of Leviticus, which begins with the words, then, because you're saying, I mean, there's so much tension here like, God resolve this for us. Like we don't know if to like sing or cry or what right now. He says, then Yahweh called to Moses and spoke to him. don't don't overlook all of these speaking words. You know Yahweh called. You know, see, He's doing some loving kindness is pursuing them. You know, God is making Himself. No, He called and it. Says He spoke. He spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, "Says well, this sounds. A, I mean, this is the God of creation speaking, but He's speaking about a new creation. He's speaking about redeeming creation. He He's speaking about." going back into his rest and always living in his Sabbath. And the book of Leviticus, is is almost 90% of it is direct speech from God. Uh, It is very unique as a book like that, which you would expect that of the book that is the centerpiece and the center point of the entire book of Moses. And to deal with the central problem, of how can sinful man be made right with holy God? So this book, as we begin to study it together, it demonstrates the holiness of God, how you're connected to it, but how it's also lived out. You know, you can't separate those two, which we know Israel did. They would keep doing the sacrifices, and later on in history, God says, I hate your sacrifices. I don't want your sacrifices, I want your heart. I don't want you to show up and go, go through the motions. I, I want you from the inside out and everything around you. So we learn that, that God is also holy in the way that we become holy. You're going to see this throughout Leviticus. We read all these laws that sound really strange to us, but what it starts pointing out is God is holy in how you eat. God is holy in what you drink and whatever you do. God is holy in how you dress. God is holy in your preferences. He's even holy in your opinions. He's holy in your relationships and how you love your neighbor is yourself. He's holy in absolutely everything. So, he gives some very thorough instruction that it's like from the moment you would wake up, you would think, what does God want me to wear? What does God want me to eat? Uh, you know, how does God want me to interact with these people that are around me today? What sort of stuff does He want me to do today? It's like everything was absorbed in being holy to the Lord. You also learn that God is holy in salvation. You see this in the, the Day of Atonement, that God is holy in time. You, know, you, you see a lot of Sabbath coming up, the festivals that are put on the calendar, so like you, all of creation belongs to God, even time, your time. So, you know, redeem the time for the days are evil. And as we've mentioned, you know, this, this holiness is all-encompassing, which is, you know, as Israel would receive this book, you know, they're asking the question, you know, how can sinful people walk with a holy God? How can we have a relationship you know, like Adam did where we just were just walking with him? I mean, how do we return to the days of unceasing prayer? How do we return to the days where you know, our relationships, our vocation, everything was wrapped up in who he was and dwelling with God? But they're also, how can God say that he forgives but he'll by no means let the guilty go unpunished? So when we approach this book as people under the New Covenant, we're, we're reading the seedbed of how we understand worship, which is being holy to the Lord, which is when you get into you know, the New Testament, you have uh, instructions about church discipline that are based on Leviticus. You have Paul writing to Timothy and how the church is ordered. He relies on the book of Leviticus or especially when it comes to understanding atonement. I mean, it's just assumed, which man, we're over time, but I'm going to tell you this anyways, real quick. But the uh, the law portion of the First Testament parallels the Gospels in the New Testament. But you you're seeing the change of administrations from Moses to Christ. So just when you're reading those, just, you know, have that in your mind when you're, it's just, it's assuming, the Gospels are assuming you have nailed down the book of Moses. It doesn't need to be repeated. You just get it. And so you can move on. And, you know, I I think the more that you learn about, you know, some of these books that we're going through in Leviticus, it's going to open up the Gospels in high definition. You're like, whoa, this was even better than I realized. Which happens like every time you reread the Bible. So, Leviticus also teaches, it teaches us about atonement, teaches us uh, about sin, how to avoid sin. It teaches us about forgiveness. It teaches us about how holiness is lived out. It's not just about being made right with God, but walking right with God. You know, it's not just having that position where we're declared holy, but we also have that practice of walking in holiness, which First Peter, he emphasizes that when he quotes Leviticus when he says you shall be holy because God is holy well we're going to have to stop here and we'll pick up you know very much in the book of Leviticus next week on on the sacrifices in the first seven chapters do you guys have any questions as we come to a close here yes sir Jesus yes which it's it's actually I think it's it's more clear than a shadow I know that's how scripture talks about it but you know that it, it's a sun. You know that he's a scepter, so he's a ruler. You know that he's a shepherd, so he's a, shepter, a shepherd king. And you know that he's the stone of Israel who protects, provides, and guides. And you know he's a guy who has to be a man, but he also has to be God. So he has to be a God-man. So the only question for the prophets was, well, who is he and when does he show up? Which is exactly what it says in 1 Peter. They wanted to know who was the person and at what time. It's like, we know everything else. Which maybe this, you know, when you're reading your New Testament, what you're, what you're reading is Old Testament preaching. They're just preaching the Old Testament to you. Or let's call it the First Testament. Because you, you hear old, you know, oh, it's like outdated or something. No, it's not. You know, it's first. It's the foundational stuff. It's the, you know, the elementary principles that helps you to, to understand the, the maturing that happened when Christ came within his development of his redemptive plan in the world. Yes, ma'am. Right. Yeah, yeah, and that's a key thing to recognize. You know, God isn't interested in what things look like on the outside, but he's interested in your heart, ultimately. I'll close us in prayer. Our gracious and holy God, we wonder at your grace and what you would condescend to sinful man to dwell among us and to give us such promises and to have that realized in the sending of your son and in the hope of his second coming when everything that is his is placed under his feet forever and we wait for that day and pray as we look to you our holy God that you would help us to walk in the holy calling which you have called us to and that you would Help us to understand Leviticus and how it connects to you and teaches us about you and how it stirs us unto living a holy life to honor you until your glory is spread to the ends of the earth. Amen.